Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, this is Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. We're going to have a series of fun guests. We're going to chew the fat and we're going to dish the dirt. And we're going to bring you the best and the smartest people I can find. Make sure you tell your friends. Join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. for the people in the back. <laughs> well, as the DC resident on the stage, it gives me tremendous pleasure to say, welcome to Hashtag Sister-in-Law's live show at the beautiful Howard Theater in Washington, DC. Yes. Oh, we can do even better than that. We are the nation's capital. Come on. And we are with Jill Winebanks. Barb McQuaid. Choice Vance. And I'm Kim Atkins-Store. And it is wonderful to be with all of you live. You know, we always say at this point, and we'll take some questions at the end of the show. We will do that tonight, but instead of taking questions that have been emailed to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweeted using hashtag sistersinlaw, we are gonna take your questions live. You will see there are two microphones right here. At the end of the show, we will have you queue up and we will answer as many questions as we can. Now, regretfully, we have learned that we cannot answer every question because DC has a curfew. <laughs> but we will take as many as we can. But what will help us is if you all keep your questions short, one question, that means no comments. A comment is not a question, a question is a question. But to keep it fun, one thing we're going to be talking about, because we're about to chat a little bit about all the things that we love about Washington, D.C., if you say one thing, like if an alien landed in D.C. and was only here for a couple of hours, what site should that alien see? What should they do? Where they should go? And so we'll ask you your name, we'll ask you the best D.C. site, and then you can say your question at the end of the show, okay? But just remember to keep it quick so that we get to as many as we can. But speaking of Washington, D.C., like, this is my home. You know, I'm from Detroit, and 
My adopted hometown is Boston because I write for the Boston Globe and I've uh, been connected to that city for a long time. But, you know, I thought about it. I call myself a DC resident, but I've been here 17 years. And so, you know, we've been, we were talking backstage about some of the things that we really love about this city. Before we came out, we all uh, had uh, half smokes with chili from Ben's Chili Bowl. So we are embracing it. And I was just thinking about, you know, since some of you have lived here, or you've been here many, many times, what are, what's your favorite place or thing to do in Washington, D.C., Jill? Well, my favorite thing to do is to visit my friends, some of whom are here tonight. Thank you all. But if I had to pick one place, I'd say the Women's Military Museum because people don't know about it. It's at Arlington at the entrance and it has a glass ceiling that's pierced by two staircases. So it's really amazing, and I think you should all go see it. What about you, Barb? Well, there's so much to love here. I always love the, the uh, Lincoln Memorial. One I was thing. Trying... <laughs> yeah, stick to the rules, Barb. All right. The, the, the story I wanted to tell was um, the uh, Smithsonian Museum of American History. Um, not only because it's a beautiful place with lots of stuff, but because I have my own history there. A friend of mine, Fang Huang, who's here tonight, and her sister Chi, where are you? In the house? Up here! Up here. Hey, hey. Um, once participated in something we, we called Operation Ball Gown. Uh, it was the Obama inauguration in 2009, and I was lucky enough to score a ticket to go to the speech, you know, on the grounds with a, you know, Many, many, hundreds of thousands. Not quite as many as it were at the Trump inauguration, I think, that I heard. <laughs> but a lot of people were out there. And so I was there all day. And then I also had a ticket to the Michigan Ball, which was at the Museum of American History. I was really excited. But I thought, gosh, in light of all of the logistics, how am I going to go from my warm Bernie Sanders clothes with the mittens <laughs> to my fabulous ball gown? And so... Uh, Fong and Chi and I sat down and we were like, you know, maps planning D-Day, planning this whole thing. We called it Operation Ball Gown. And they delivered to me the ball gown. I put it on. And let's just say a ladies' room at the JW Marriott may have had something to do with it. <laughs> but I thank you, Fong Wang. <laughs> what, about what about you, Joyce? So I actually started my career as a lawyer in D.C., and I practiced at a wonderful firm, Errant Fox. Um, I see some of my friends from the Fox in the back of the room. Um, loved being here, liked everything about D.C. I liked the food, I liked running outside, I liked the mall. But I'll tell y'all, the thing that I liked the most, unfortunately, is no longer here. It was only here for a couple of years. It was the name tag outside of a door um, of a Senate office that had previously borne a plaque that said Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. And for two shining years, it said G. Douglas Jones. Two of the happiest years of my life as an Alabamian. So I may have mentioned on the podcast a time or two that I'm a nerd. <laughs> and so, to me, when I moved to Washington, D.C., one of the greatest things about this city was that the museums were free, this, these wonderful Smithsonian's, right? And I spent a ton of time there, but I found my happiest place in the whole city. Have any, has anybody been to the Peacock Room inside the Asian <laughs> Museum of Art? 
I remember the first time I walked in there, and I'm somebody, you know, fashion is deep in my heart, and I love textiles and colors, and, and I walked in, and it was just so visually stunning that I just sat in the middle of it and took it in, and I was so enraptured by it. And then I learned that once a month, and I don't know if they've restarted this again since the pandemic, I hope so, once a month, they would open the shutters in the room so that natural light would come in, and they could only do that very occasionally so as not to you know, damage this beautiful room that was painted just gorgeously. And one day I went there, it was so stunning, and the curator told me the story about this room, that this room was originally done by Whistler for, uh, in this, for this wealthy you know, mansion owner in London. And then Charles Freer, after whom the Freer Museum, uh, Freer Gallery is named, went and loved that room so much, he had it moved meticulously, piece by piece, across the Atlantic to Detroit. I am from Detroit. I was like, wait a minute, stop. This room was in Detroit? I did not know that, even though I already loved it. Made me love it more. It was in uh, Freer's home, mansion in Detroit for years, and he put all of these art pieces that he got from prim primarily Asia, but all over the world, in this room. So then he donated that to the Smithsonian, they again meticulously took it apart and moved it from Detroit here in Washington, D.C., and that made me love it even more because there's a hometown connection to it, so that's my happiest place in all of Washington, D.C. Mm, love that. So we have one more night in Washington, D.C. We will be here through tomorrow, and so we will have some time to uh, to check out some more sites and, and we will take in some of the suggestions that you make for us and that might be among them. Now in the spirit of keeping your question short, I hold my sisters to the same standard that I hold y'all and we only have so much time on this stage again, curfew in DC. So one thing when we do MSNBC that you don't know is that when we need to finish up our answer, there'll be a little voice of a producer in our ear that says, rap. So you may hear me, because I can see our clock, when we're doing our uh, segments today, say to one of my sisters-in-law, rap. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that means. So let's get to what you wanna see, which is our show. And tonight, we have a lot to discuss. Our first topic will be the latest legal peril that is facing former President Trump. The next subject will be the wave of anti-trans laws being passed from coast to coast. And then finally, we will discuss the legal landscape of Ron DeSantis' Florida. That so let's get things. Boo, guys. Come on. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. Well, Donald Trump, right? It wouldn't be an episode of the podcast if we didn't discuss the former president who seems to be interested in monopolizing all of the resources of state and federal legal systems. It is incredible. Um, it seems to me, though, that the serious question, the important question we should be thinking about is, are we moving closer to achieving justice? And what does justice look like here? There are a lot of cases in progress, and a lot of them are criminal. That seems like a good place to start. 
You know, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, seems to be setting a timeline. So Kim, what do you think about what we're learning this week in Fulton County and the, the odds that Fonnie Willis will be, uh, you know, she's batter up right now. I mean, she's really slotted herself for August. What's gonna happen? Yeah, she really has. The one thing that I learned is that anybody who has been waiting for Fonnie Willis to finally make her decision about any indictments and who those indictments might be against. If you have summer vacation plans in August, I got bad news for you. <laughs> Because not only has she announced yeah, that a final decision will be made before September 1st, but she has instructed in the courthouse no trials or motions be scheduled in that second week of August. Now that is, that's not a tea leaf, that's like a tea tree. <laughs> that lets you know A, what the timing is, and B, she wouldn't be making this decision, and the prosecutors can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but she wouldn't be making this announcement if there was going to be no indictment, and if that indictment would not be a significant one, and one that the courts and other people there in Georgia need to be prepared for. So that's a big deal. I mean, I think that means that she already knows what good she has. She has them, and the timing for this, for whatever reason, is being made at this time. And we often talk about, and I want to hear this from um, all of you guys too, how these different investigations may intersect. Um, I'm wondering if part of the reason for that might be any sort of, I, I know prosecutors don't interact with each other, but Perhaps it may be something, some timing indication that is with respect to Jack Smith's investigation. If she, if she has the goods now, why is she waiting until August uh, to do it? It may have to do with the scheduling of courtrooms in Georgia. It may have to be with preparations that need to be made for something of this magnitude to go down and, and being able to put all, those, stuff, all this, those things into place. But to me, this is the biggest investigation that I've been watching the most important and that timetable means I have blocked off that time in my calendar. So I think you raised such an interesting point, right? If she knows she's going to go, why not now? And I have wondered in speculation whether it has something to do with her resource posture. Fonnie Willis mm -hmm. is the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. She does not have the resources of, say, the United States Justice Department, right? Much broader resource posture all the way across the country. And Jack Smith, possibly, the special counsel, has a case that's coming too. Um, we learned this week that he is getting some information from the National Archives, which may help out. But there's been a shakeup among the former president's lawyers. What do you make of the uh, federal posture here? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I do think the Fonnie Willis investigation is particularly important because even though it only deals with the impact of the election in Georgia and not the whole nation, um, in Georgia, you cannot have a future president uh, pardon Donald Trump or anyone else who might be charged, right? They have a very different pardon system there that's a very bipartisan pardon system. And so any conviction there seems likely to stick uh, in a way that a federal... But um, we know that special counsel Jack Smith has been investigating. He's had Mike Pence in the grand jury. We've had some interesting changes occur recently with one of Trump's lawyers uh, withdrawing from representation, which always suggests to me 
that perhaps, you know, sometimes it indicates somebody's going to plead guilty or withdraw from some sort of joint defense agreement. But in this case, it sounds like maybe becoming a witness. And so that part is, um, is really interesting. The other development we saw um, very recently was um, news that the National Archives provided some documents to Jack Smith indicating that Donald Trump uh, was told that it was not lawful for him to retain the Mar-a-Lago documents, you know, the presidential documents that he is, admits that he had. And you know, during that CNN town hall meeting, um, he said a couple things that were interesting. One is he admitted he had them. He claimed once again that he can just declassify them by thinking about them somehow. <laughs> I've said, you know, I can lose 10 pounds just by thinking about it, right? <laughs> no, I had those, what were they called, half smokes? I had some half smokes. Um, which is not right, because even, if, even though a president can declassify something, you have to still be in office to declassify them, and you have to communicate it to everyone else. I know we have a lot of um, public servants here tonight, government employees, retired government employees, former federals, and we uh, thank you for your service. But as many of you know, you can't have a president secretly declassify something because the point of declassifying is to tell all the people in government how they're supposed to treat this document. But the reason it's, I think, particularly significant is it can really help prove an element of uh, a, uh, a case for mishandling classified documents. Um, you know, not every case of mishandling classified documents is prosecuted as a crime. Usually it requires some aggravating factor, like obstruction of justice, disloyalty to the United States, um, but willfulness, which means the person knew that what they were doing was unlawful. That is an exception to most statutes, which simply, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And that is true for most statutes. But it, when it comes to mishandling classified information, you have to prove that the person knew it was illegal. And so it turns out um, you know, Donald Trump can, has done a pretty good job of playing dumb all these years. <laughs> but it appears that the National Archives has now provided evidence that Donald Trump knew what the law was and that he was breaking it anyway. So Barb, I have a quick follow-up. Kim has staked a claim to the Georgia prosecution as being something important and meaningful. Ty Cobb, one of the former lawyers who worked for Trump in the White House and gave him advice, said on television earlier this week that he believed that Trump would go to prison in the classified documents case. What do you think about the potential for justice in either, either half of the classified documents or the January 6th cases? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that it's quite possible that he would get a custodial sentence. Again, all of you who've worked in federal government, the idea that you could have 26 boxes of classified documents <laughs> in your basement or the basement of the country club where, that you run, uh, with all kinds of members of the public coming and going um, is, is really egregious. Uh, you know, you think about some of these other government officials who have been charged with crimes and served lengthy sentences. I think the January 6th one is of a bigger magnitude because of the attack on democracy. And so that one strikes me as more likely for a criminal sentence. But I don't know if a President Trump, former President Trump, ever actually serves time in prison because of the Secret Service obligations, right? Like, uh, what prisoner shows up in the orange jumpsuit in his own detail? Um, <laughs> not too often. But I do think a sentence of imprisonment will be 
imposed if he is convicted. Certainly he'd be right to, uh, have a right to a presumption of innocence, but both of these crimes are of a significant magnitude. Uh, you know, that certainly anyone else would get a significant presence, prison sentence and a former president should not be treated any differently. So Jill, that leaves you with Manhattan. I'm so fascinated by what's going on in Manhattan this coming week, right? Um, Because I don't know if y'all have seen this, but the judge who's overseeing the Manhattan prosecution is holding a hearing with Trump this week. He wants to go over a specific order he's entered. What do you think about what's going on in Manhattan, Jill? It's an unusual circumstance because we have an unusual former president. It's never been done where you would say to somebody, you have to sit in a room with your lawyers, you cannot remove these documents, I have to look you in the eye, there's gonna be a Zoom session where the judge is gonna look at Donald Trump and give these rules to him. And obviously, it's warranted. Look what he's done with these classified documents Barbara was just talking about. So it makes a lot of sense to me to do exactly that and to protect those documents from disclosure and from misuse. And the only way to protect it is to put those constraints on him. It has to be done. There is so much going on with Trump, with a multiplicity of cases. I feel like we can all be forgiven if we struggle to keep track of everything. I have, on occasion, found myself having to dig deep into the inner resources of my brain to try to figure out when someone asks me a question, is that about Fulton County or the federal case or about Manhattan? Because in some ways the cases do intersect and that may ultimately be something that benefits prosecutors. But I'm very curious to see what my sisters think the most important feature of the landscape is. You know, for me, I'm very focused on this notion that judges are increasingly onto Trump's tricks, right? And the notion that we have a judge, Juan Mershan, in, in, in uh, Manhattan, who's about to sit the former president down and go over a discovery order with him and say, if you cross the line, if you put any of this on social media, if you go to another CNN town hall and talk you know, smack about a witness like you did about E. Jean Carroll, I will hold you in contempt of court. I think that's a good thing, and I think that it's long overdue. Yeah. I'm curious what each of y'all are looking about in just this entire bag of stuff that's going on and pulling out as your top line encouraging sign. Yeah, well, first of all, I just have to comment on, you know, trying to keep everything straight and how difficult it is. The fact that we are on tour, this is the third city that we have done in a little more than a week. And I have to say, just, you know, how, how what a whirlwind that has been, that my brain is working even less uh, as well <laughs> as it was before. I don't know how Beyonce and Taylor Swift do it. It's a lot of work to be... <laughs> to be on tour. In fact, I'm so tired that I just a few minutes ago called Barb Joyce. Swear to God, I just, I'm one of those people who, I know a lot of other people have done that. I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, that's how tiring it is. All the time, it's incredible. In airports, people have walked up to me and called me Barb, and I've reached the point where several weeks ago I signed an autograph for someone in my <laughs> I'm glad true. you're signing autographs. I signed checks that say Joyce Vance. <laughs> 
All right, so I'm in good company. But I have to believe not just what I think is the most impactful of all these investigations, and they're all really, really important, but also what may, I think will resonate with the American people the most, especially by uh, what we've learned from E. Jean Carroll, which were people in a state who are looking at something under state law and making a determination about it. I still stick with Georgia because I think one thing that the January 6th hearings taught us is the explanation about the way Donald Trump tried to interfere and pressure lawmakers in Georgia in particular was just so odious and just so against the basic idea that when each of us casts a vote, it means something and it is up to the people to decide what happens. And even there were people in Georgia, there was a bipartisan condemnation about what he was doing it showed, and the fact that that moved the needle on public opinion during that time, it shows that that sort of thing resonates and is important to a great percentage of this country. There may be a tiny and shrinking per, uh, percentage of folks who identify with the MAGA crowd, but it gave me such hope in the fact that I think people get this Florida investigation. They get why it's important. And I do worry about some things like you pointed out, the fact that it is a state investigation. It may not have the kind of resources that the special counsel's office has, and that could be uh, an impediment uh, for District Attorney Fonnie Willis in doing that. And I hope that it isn't. I really hope that the you know Georgia legislature certainly is not starving that office of resources in their budget or anything like that. But H it's- Have you been to Georgia recently, yeah. Kim? Yeah. But I still hold out hope that that is a teachable moment and that is a moment where justice can come to the fore because I do believe it's the most important. Yeah, I really do. I agree with that. It's so important. Barb, Georgia for you or something else? Well, you know, Georgia's blue now. Did you all see that um, SNL skit about blue Georgia? That was great. The, the waitress in the, in the diner said uh, her pronouns were she, ma'am. That was, <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was really Something good. Else. Um, and don't let Joyce fool you when she says she's having trouble keeping track of all of these investigations. It's true. She keeps meticulous notes. She's got in her house one of those like cork boards, you know, with the red string connecting things. And, photos and all, you know, it, 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 she's convinced that if she spends just enough time with all the material, she will break the case. Right? The Girl, red string, of course. Board. It's a whiteboard <laughs> with writing on it. The red string, of course, is knitting yarn. <laughs> there you go. That's attaching everything. Um, I'll tell you what uh, the thing that um, has convinced me that this case is going well, and I'm talking about the, the federal January 6th investigation is, I know people are frustrated with Merrick Garland. I think very highly of Merrick Garland, and I think he, want, he has you right where he wants you, which is thinking that things are being done slowly, methodically, scrupulously, fairly, maybe to a fault. Maybe to a fault, Mr. Attorney General, if you're listening. I'm sure he listens to this podcast. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, if you, if you take him at his word, what he said... Um, Back when they began this investigation, he said, we will do what we ordinarily do. We build cases from the bottom up. They have charged more than 1,000 people, and they're getting convictions, and they've worked their way up, and they have convicted these militia groups, this, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, of a very challenging charge, seditious conspiracy, which is a big deal. It says you know, they conspired to use force, physical violence, 
to oppose the authority of the United States to prevent the lawful transfer of presidential power. So they're working their way up. They've been very successful in those prosecutions. And there's really only one level up left to go. And they're putting people like Mike Pence into the grand jury and uh, you know, the people who are closest to Donald Trump. You know, they may or may not ultimately make a charging decision to charge Donald Trump, but I think they're right there. And I think what we've seen with the success that they've had with the seditious conspiracy cases, um, I feel like it's a go and it's going to be a successful go. And I think once it is, we will all be uh, glad that Merrick Garland was so circumspect in his public comments. Will we? Okay. I think if you, so. I, I think so. You promise. And we have seen a good example of why prosecutors move slowly these last couple of weeks. I get how painful this is. Sometimes I get frustrated. And frankly, for the first year that Merrick Garland was in office, where we didn't see any signs that there is investigation ongoing, I was perplexed and confused. But then he came out early in the following year in 2022 and said, we will follow the evidence wherever it goes, whether people were present on January 6th or not. And that was enough for me. I took that as an indication that he was in the game. But recently we've seen in a lot of these cases that if you're willing to let them marinate for a while, more evidence will come to light. And I hope that not very many of you read the complaint in the Rudy Giuliani case, because it's an oh, no. odious thing, right? <laughs> However, there is some valuable evidence in there that federal prosecutors in particular may be able to make use of. And if Merrick Garland had indicted a half-baked case 12 months ago, he would not have had that evidence. He would not have had Mike Pence, who I agree with Barb is essential. So keep the faith. We need just a little bit um, more patience. And I just think. to put a finer point on, on what Joyce is talking about, in case you haven't followed it, but this Noel Dunphy who filed the the civil lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani says Giuliani gave her carte blanche to run his email and that they can deliver 23,000 email messages between uh, Rudy Giuliani and a number of people who are key insiders in the Trump administration. So there could be a real treasure trove of information there. Yeah, and I always want to make sure that there you were are not tapes. Remember that. She also said she has the tapes of conversations that include things like selling pardons. So those are going to be really yeah. crucial. And I think, Joyce, the answer to your question is that it's the accumulation of all of these cases. Any one of them is important. Even Bragg, which he was criticized for, oh, why is this the first case that is charging him criminally? It's just false records. Well, first of all, it's false records to cover up a conspiracy and to fraud. There are several schemes of fraud. So it's really an important case in itself. And just because you do more horrible things than that doesn't mean you get a pass on that. But it is really how all of these fit together to show he was a crook in his business affairs through the Bragg case, that he was willing to give up democracy on January 6th, that he is willing to try after the election is lost to do something in Georgia and many other states to undo the election. So I think when you combine them all, that's what's the most important, is to see who he really is, and that at some point, even his most loyal followers are going to say, well, that one I can excuse, and that one I, but at some point you can't excuse them all. So I think that it is the combination that really does it, and that will lead to his being finally held accountable. I used, you know, I'm known for my pins, and last night we were on the Alicia Menendez show, the four of us, and 
I wore a turtle because it's been going so slow, but I don't think I'm going to have many more chances to wear that turtle. So I wore it last night, and then I'm retiring it because I think it's time to move. All right, I'm going to break my own rule because normally this will be about the time that I would say rap. But I, Can have, I have one more question. Yes. Though? Okay. Is that okay? Yes. Really? Yes. I worry she's going to get mad at me. She's very strict. She's got that rap eye going over there. She's, she's giving it to me. But it's an important question, so thank you, Kim. <laughs> we have talked about this a little bit from time to time, but it has really popped into focus this week. E. Jean Carroll has just won a $5 million verdict. $5 million verdict against Trump in a civil case. Nobody goes to jail at the end of a civil case. Are civil cases also a meaningful way of holding the former guy accountable? How do you guys weigh that into this calculus of everything that's going on? Well, I think you answered the question. I mean, we saw uh, that when there is a civil jury, uh, that weighs evidence and considers it, and even one that included people who were supporters of the former president, when the evidence is put before them and they see that a case has been made by a plaintiff, they are willing to hand down that jury and, and weigh, um, you know, and, and say that this is something that they are liable for and hold them accountable. So I think that that's a really uh, important thing to remember. I think that civil, in, in the case, some of the cases out of Manhattan are civil actions as well about Trump's businesses. So as the former civil litigator on the stage, it's very rewarding to see uh, the civil justice system working. I also think it's important for the Me Too movement for all women, as someone who has fought for the Equal Rights Amendment since 1976, which I hope will soon be the 28th Amendment. Uh, my state has just filed a resolution demanding that President Biden announce that the Department of Justice will now enforce the 28th Amendment. So I do think that Dumphy's case, the, the one against Giuliani, who we call Giuliani, um, <laughs> that she was encouraged by the result of the E. Jean Carroll case. And I think many other women will come forward against Trump and others, and that we will have some accountability on a broader level for all wrongdoing on that level. And I would say to that point, I would love to see some legal defense funds set up in the name of all the people who are a part of the Me Too movement who do not have the wherewithal of Dunphy or Carroll in order to bring these cases and hold these people accountable because you know that they are out there. They, don't, they may not have the money or the, or the name recognition to be recognized, but justice, they are just as deserving of justice as everyone else. And you know what other civil cases, Joyce, are out there that people may forget about? You mentioned in, in Manhattan, the uh, Attorney General of New York has a financial case, but still lurking out there are the civil cases brought here in Washington, D.C. by members of Congress and police officers at right. Capitol Hill who are injured for uh, destruction of property and physical injuries against Donald Trump um, and other members of his campaign, civil cases under the, the Ku Klux Klan Act. Um, this was the statute that was used in Charlottesville to get $26 million out of the Unite the Right planners. And so I think that's another place where there could be some uh, you know, a fruitful results that could hold Donald Trump accountable. Rap. <laughs> <laughs> really, but just, no. 
She said rap, Joyce. I know. I'm going to say one fast thing, as we all do when they say rap. We're losing control, Kim. Never underestimate the value of the civil cases. The Southern Poverty Law Center broke the back of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama with a civil case. So, Kim, I have found a new way to be environmentally friendly and have the greatest coffee. It's called Bruvy, and I think you're trying it too, aren't you? I am. So my husband is the coffee maker in our household, and he takes a lot of joy in, you know, grinding the grinds and, like, making the brew himself. He has really fallen in love with Bruvy. Not only is it very convenient, but it's a good product. So you can forget everything you know about single-serve coffee and meet Bruvy. Bruvy is exceptional coffee, made easy. We still can't get over how Bruvy makes remarkably tastier coffee. It's hotter, which is true. It's stronger, depending on which type you pick, and smoother, with noticeably less bitterness. You'll love the taste as much as we do, no matter how you like your coffee. That's because Bruvy expertly brews seven different beverages, brewed coffee, true high-pressure espresso, and Americanos, cold brew, and more. And with Bruvy, you get to choose from a variety of sustainably sourced, 100% Arabica craft coffees. That means every sip is super premium coffee, all without fancy coffee house prices. My favorite right now is Route 66. It's delicious. You can also sign up for automatic delivery and save 20% on every order. Plus, you can forget trying to recycle used coffee pods, which isn't always effective. Only guilt-free toss bee pods from Bruvy can be simply tossed in the trash after use because they uniquely break down more rapidly through an organic process without leaving microplastics behind. So I have a wonderful husband, but he's also an obsessive recycling geek. Even my husband likes Bruvy, which tells you a lot about the science behind the microplastics not being present when you put the pods in the trash. You can be environmentally friendly and declutter your kitchen countertop, display a coffee, including the Bruvy Brewer, a variety pack of 20 Bruvy bee pods, a premium water filter kit, a reusable Japanese knot-style canvas bag, and free shipping. So join us in taking your coffee game to the next level. Save $100 on the Bruvy bundle at Bruvy.com with the code SISTERS. When you do that at checkout, you will save $100. Again, that's Bruvy, B-R-U-V-I dot com with the code SISTERS at checkout to save $100 on the Bruvy bundle. Everyone can also find the link in our show notes. All right, well, I'm going to take the handoff and move on to our second topic. And I wanted to talk about the way um, the far-right extremists are targeting uh, transgender kids and transgender adults. You know, this is, I, I'm writing this book on disinformation, and one of the tactics that we've seen throughout history is to choose some group to be the out-group and to demonize them and to distract people from the fact that, you know, you're not earning as much money as prior generations and you're worse off economically. Yeah, but look at this bad group. We're going to demonize these people. And of course, the tragedy of it is, uh, you know, innocent people 
real people suffer the consequences. And right now, it's you know, trans kids who are being used as the pawns in all of this. So I wanted to ask uh, some of you about some recent developments. One is, I don't know if you saw this, a federal judge in Mississippi. Kim, I'll ask you about this. Uh, federal judge in Mississippi ruled against a transgender girl who um, has been dressing as a girl throughout high school and was recently told she must dress as a boy pursuant to the school's dress code for her high school graduation, which is coming up very soon. She must wear a shirt and tie uh, and may not wear the dress that she already purchased with her mother for her graduation. Judge ruled against her. Um, and what do you think about um, you know, the, the law there? I mean, Title IX, right? Equal protection clause. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so there would have been a time that I would have thought, okay, that ruling is a clear violation of the equal protection laws when you are treating somebody based on their gender differently. There is a constitutional protection uh, against that kind of discrimination. Well, I think a little differently now when it comes to constitutional interpretation, so I'll try to keep this uh, on a non-lawyer level. Uh, something happened in the Dobbs decision, as well as the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin that puts making that kind of claim, uh, it makes that kind of claim much harder to make. Now you say, what do guns and abortion have to do with trans children? Well, it has to do with that constitutional analysis. In both of those cases, the Supreme Court seems to be imposing a new standard to make a claim that you are constitutionally injured by something that has happened to you. And there has to be some sort of history and tradition of protecting this said right in order to find that uh, for the court to rule in your favor. In the Bruin decision, of course there is a long history and tradition of guns in America. Like guns have been always the greatest thing in America. And George so Washington and his AR-15, who could forget that? Correct, <laughs> correct, right? So that gets a very broad protection. Whereas in Dobbs, abortion, like how long has that even been legal? Like 10 minutes, you know? There is no long history or tradition of that when in fact people have been having an abortions in America as long as there have has been in America, but in the court's eyes, it's not. So when I saw this new sort of trend by the Supreme Court, the first thing I thought of was, well, my God, if my rights are only, only the rights that are, have a long history and protection, <laughs> I am toast uh, as a black woman in America. And I think members of Congress saw that too, especially after Clarence Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs that basically said, yep, all these other rights, that have been protected in the same way abortion was up until now, they are up for grabs. So what did Congress do? At least with respect to things like same-sex marriage, again, history and tradition, do you think that's something that the Supreme Court will find? Interracial marriage? Do you think that that was just Clarence Thomas's way of building himself an out in case things should go south for Jenny with all of her financial problems? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I like the way you think. <laughs> but Congress passed a law that protected those things, which gives me to my second point. Separately from a constitutional interpretation, when you have a, an interpretation of a statute that has been passed to protect laws, the Supreme Court considers it differently. They look at the language of the statute and, statute and finds whether or not what happened violated it. So, a great example is a case called Bostock, which was written by Justice Gorsuch, which examined whether Title VII, which is the statute that prohibits uh, discrimination in places like employment, 
whether that applied to LGBTQ people who had been fired due to their status as being LGBTQ employees. And Justice Gorsuch found that it did because under the plain reading of that statute, when you talk about discrimination based on sex, that is exactly what's happening here. So in this case, I think the best case to challenge this will be through Title IX, which has a similar uh, provision prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex. And any school that receives federal funding needs to abide by that. So I think if I were bringing a challenge, I would bring a Title IX. Now there's not a ton of case law and there's not a lot of history in this, but I think the best shot, better than a constitutional argument, which is so sad to say, would be charging, um, would be challenging this under that statute. Yeah, I, you know, I'd say that sounds like a winner, except the judge in Mississippi said it was a loser. But, um, but if it goes, a, but I think yeah. it will be a lot harder for the SCOTUS to square that with their past precedent to the extent that precedent matters anymore. In, if it's a statutory challenge and a constitutional one. And I love how you just jump past the Fifth Circuit because we all know already how this case comes out there. Yeah, no, I think with Justice Gorsuch being the author of the Bostick case, as you say, I think that there's a fighting chance there. So maybe, maybe we'll see some um, uh, fair outcomes in that case. We'll, we'll wait and see. Well, um, Joyce, let me ask you this. Um, in addition to that case with uh, the, the transgender girl and her graduation wardrobe. We've also been seeing this slew of bills across the country that are banning gender-affirming medical care. Um, Nebraska was the latest to join on Friday. Um, you know, what, what is that all about? Um, and why is it that when you see one state do something like that, suddenly every state's doing it? So, you know, this is such an interesting question. It's something that civil rights lawyers grapple with because unless you believe that these sorts of cases are just spontaneously cropping up across the country because there are so many problems involving transgender people. I mean, you know, people are going to see drag shows and then they're dying, right? <laughs> it's just, it's incredible to me that so much energy and so many resources are focused on this legislation. And my background as a civil rights lawyer in Alabama suggests that there's a deliberate agenda, that there are people in different groups, and, and you see this come from different places, who sort of push this out to the states that are the most susceptible of good outcomes for conservatives. I base that on, on two experiences that I had. One involved voting ID acts, um, and that's sort of a sad story that most of you know about the Shelby County case which kneecapped the Voting Rights Act, gutted Section 5, made it very difficult to um, do anything to statutes that were passed that made it more difficult to vote before they went into effect. Under the Voting Rights Act in Section 5, those statutes required preclearance to go into effect. After Shelby County versus Holder, well, those statutes were free to go into effect and they could only be challenged after the fact. And you know, it wasn't just Alabama that had a voter ID act, although the genesis of this whole issue is that Alabama passes an act, refuses to submit it for preclearance, and brings the Shelby County versus Holder case, knowing that they will win and that their voter ID act will go into effect. But there were voter ID acts that were passed in a number of different states. Mississippi had one ready to go. They had actually been denied clearance and, and held it for Shelby County. Other states put theirs into place immediately. 
And it's because there was a conservative, uh, I don't want to call him a thinker, so I'll just say that there was a conservative named Chris Kobach who was writing the 1.0 version and then the 2.0 version of that statute. And his name may be familiar to you. He's a repeat politician, was held in contempt by a court in his most recent sorts of efforts and told he needed some remedial ethics training, which I thought was an appropriate sort of an outcome. It's not just voting rights, though, that informs our understanding of these agendas, because the same thing happened with anti-immigration laws, 2010-2011. A couple of states passed just these heinous anti-immigration bills. I'll just give you one little flavor of that. In Alabama, the law was so restrictive, you know, there's a federal right to get a K through 12 education, whether or not you're an American citizen. To register to go to K through 12 school in Alabama, you had to reveal your parents' immigration status after Alabama passed its anti-immigration law. You know, that had some obvious impact, right? It was one of just a number of statutes, though, that were anti-immigrant. The case that went to the Supreme Court was Arizona's bill. But there was, again, this little cluster of statutes that did not erupt spontaneously, much like the transgender um, sorts of laws that we're seeing today do not erupt spontaneously. I think that's important knowledge, by the way, for you to have, because one of the most important things that we can do is ask people to think sensibly about this. And in an era where we're grappling with climate change, for one thing, and a lot of other serious problems, should we really be wasting the amount of time conservatives want to waste on essentially outlawing the transgender community? Well, Jill, I want to I want to pick up on that because, um, as Joyce said, you know, if you look at sort of popular opinion, um, you know, criminalizing the trans community is not at the top of anybody's political agenda, and in fact, in unless most, you're Ron DeSantis, um, and in most states, uh, we see that voters are you know favoring reproductive rights, and yet we're seeing a push for all of these abortion bans. Um, to what extent do you think these laws are reflecting not the will of the people, but the will of the legislatures? And to what extent is that a problem that goes hand in hand with gerrymandering and voter suppression laws? Those, those are all really related. And it certainly does not represent, if you look at any statistics, what Americans, Democrat and Republican, believe. It is what the MAGA GOP crowd believes will get them elected in a primary. It's not good for the general election, so I think in the end, this may be good for Democrats because they represent the point of view of most Americans, but right now, to get through the primary, you have to be at this extreme end. And gerrymandering, which is a result of, honestly, the Democrats not paying attention at the state level, because they're the ones who are setting the gerrymander rules. And if Democrats would get busy electing everything from the school board to the state house, if you have the governor and you have the Senate and the Congress in your particular state, sorry, DC, that you don't have 
what you should have. Don't get me started about yeah. taxation without representation. Yeah, it is certainly true. Let's, let's do something about that too. But if Democrats could take control again, maybe they could actually do that. But yes, gerrymandering is definitely one of the main things. And it's not an easy problem to solve. I'm on the board of the Better Government Association of Illinois. And we've looked at trying to not gerrymander in Illinois, which is, of course, gerrymandered to my advantage, but isn't, it's no fairer to do it that way. And it's not easy to change the boundaries without losing people you love. My own congresswoman, who's fantastic, Jan Schakowsky, would be at risk in some of the redrawn maps. So it's a very hard thing to do, but you have to get rid of the gerrymandered districts. You know all the routines of the Supreme Court says, well, racial gerrymandering, that's not constitutional, but political, oh, that's okay. So Democrats can be denied their rights, even though, of course, it might also disenfranchise the black population of the same state because they're all getting squeezed in. So we have to do something about that. The voter suppression rules are also related. You can't skip that because they're trying to force people not to vote by making it very difficult. So we're gonna have to really out-register. Guys, the, the 18 to 25 year olds are gonna have to get out there and vote because that's a big untapped population. We saw a lot of young people out here today. We're counting yes. on you. You know, President Obama, right after he left office, he's from Chicago and he spoke in Chicago. And someone asked him a sort of question like this and he said, look, it's really very simple. You have to be informed you have to be involved and you have to get out the vote. And that's what it's gonna to take to save this democracy from what is happening. So, and that goes to saving the transgender community, it goes to saving every, everything about our democracy that we value. Yeah, I'll just uh, end with a grab. <laughs> no, go ahead. Okay. Finish, Barb. Finish your I'll, I'll just end with a, a hopeful note which is in my home state of Michigan, um, a yeah. bipartisan group of citizens came together to form um, an election commission. So now districts are redrawn in Michigan by this bipartisan committee, yeah. and it's done in a balanced way without regard to political favoritism. And once that happened, for the, for the first time, the first election occurred in November under these new fairly drawn redistricting lines, and for the first time in 40 years, Democrats won the state house, the state legislature, and all of the executive branch offices. Support for today's episode comes from One Skin. If you've ever thought to yourself, what if we could reverse the root causes of aging? Then listen closely. Our new sponsor, One Skin, puts science and research first. Founded by a team of four female PhD-level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience, One Skin sets out to not just decrease the visible signs of skin aging, but to treat the root causes. We're talking essential facial moisturizer, eye topical supplements, and a firm topical body supplement to keep your body moisturized so skin doesn't just look younger and healthier, it functions like younger and healthier skin. Barb, do you have questions? Well, I do, and you may ask how this can possibly work. Um, you know, for example, I'm using one skin and I'm 97 years old. <laughs> I know, I look remarkable, don't I? 
It's because OneSkin's products are formulated with their OS01 peptide as the primary active ingredient to support the skin's ability to resist the effects of intrinsic and extrinsic aging factors. Their flagship product, OS01 Face, is clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier and improve key skin health markers, meaning signs of aging are significantly diminished. Plus, they feel so refreshing. So I have to say, Barb, you stole my mother's line. She always told the doctor she was older than she was, so he'd think she looked great for her age. But this is truly amazing. They have combined tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting-edge longevity science to create the world's most effective product to target skin aging. We love how OneSkin believes the purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. It's truly next level skincare. And now for a limited time, our listeners can get 15% off OneSkin with our code SISTERS at oneskin.co. That's CO, not .com. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company addressing skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. So it's time to get started with your new face, eye, and body routine at a discounted rate today. Get 15% off with the code SISTERS at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SISTERS. We only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. Everyone can also find the link. Where can you find it? You can find it in our show notes. So from that happy, positive, forward-thinking note, we're going to go to Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but we'll, we'll try to come up with some solutions to Ron DeSantis, uh, other than you're making sure that you don't have anybody in Florida that isn't going to vote for someone other than Ron DeSantis. But I want to start with Kim, who wrote a really good piece in the Boston Globe. She's an opinion writer there. And I think it's deals with the First Amendment and some of the horrible things that Ron DeSantis is doing. And so I think that's the broadest picture we could paint. Let's start with you, Kim, talking about that. Yeah, so the piece really looked at the, the state of the First Amendment in Ron DeSantis's Florida and how just about every one of these really awful bills he has been pushing recently in the run-up uh, to his bid for national office is violative of the First Amendment in some really plain way. I think most of them would not withstand what we call a facial challenge, which means even before it's implemented, even without looking at the actual impact of this law, just looking at it on its face, like it doesn't, I'll use Jill, it doesn't pass the red face test, like of course it violates the Constitution, right? When you retaliate against Disney because you don't like what it said, and we learn from Citizens United that corporations are people with First Amendment rights. <laughs> and feelings, obviously. <laughs> when you retaliate against Mickey Mouse because you did not like that they didn't like your anti-trans bill, that violates the First Amendment, and that's one of the claims, one of the challenges that are being brought. What my column really got at is both, both hopeful and concerning on my part, because 
even if, and I do believe that they will, the First Amendment challenges against some of these laws, and I'll walk you through them, um, if they are successful, which I think they are going to be, it's gonna take some time, and there's gonna be a lot of damage done, not only to the people of Florida and throughout the country, but also to the Constitution itself in the meantime. And I think that's something to keep in mind. We talk a lot about who will win and what will be the outcome of different legal cases, but regardless of the outcome sometime, there is a negative impact there. And it things just like the, the uh, law outlaw, outlawing diversity and inclusion programs in public universities, well, that muzzles the ability of college uh, administrators to do their jobs. If they can't even mention the fact that someone is black or gay or, or comes from a certain part of the state or this part of the country and them doing their work, that is basically muzzling them in a way that is really offensive to the First Amendment. We learn that even though these might be public employees, employees of the state, they don't leave their constitutional rights at the door. Also, a lot of these don't say gay bills, guilt bills that don't allow people to use their own, even ask to have their proper pronouns used. Um, these are violated, or, or certainly these, you know, anti-woke bills that prevent instructors, professors from talking about the truth about our history if they mention a person's race or a person's gender. How is that not facially violative of the First Amendment? You cannot muzzle a professor when they are trying to teach their students. So I think these are really um, easy cases constitutionally. They will be slam dunks, each and every one of them. But in the meantime, as we pointed out before, Ron DeSantis needs a boogeyman to run against. Yeah. He needs somebody to say, hey, look at this shiny object over here so that you don't notice all these awful things that are happening that we have no answer for. You don't notice that we have no answer for why your food is so expensive. I was just in Florida and it's like the amount of that groceries are, restaurants. Restaurant workers are suffering. They're still understaffed. Their uh, hospitality and, and industry has taken a tremendous hit among other reasons, fear about immigration policies. We don't want you to focus on that. Look at this trans show over here and how awful that is. Let's keep people from playing on sports teams with their peers based on their sex. This is the, what he is staking out because he thinks it's politically valuable to him. Well, what about the fact that you have young people Maybe people who don't make a lot of money who, as he said, if they want to go to a woke school, they can go to Berkeley. What about people who don't make a lot of money in Florida and they were counting on going to community college or a state college and they're not gonna get a quality education because Ron DeSantis is putting a muzzle on their professors. So the damage that this has done, it's just important to remember that even if the legal victories come at the end, the damage that's being done in the meantime is tremendous. So Joyce, I wanted you to follow up on, you wrote an, a very good piece. Um, I'm sure all of you know that Joyce has a great Substack uh, civil discourse and um, Thank you. you wrote something very, very meaningful about what DeSantis is doing and I wanna talk about schools in particular. So let's focus on what kind of damage he's doing to the curriculum and then we're gonna to go to Barbara and talk about the faculty and tenure. So if, if you would address some of that. Yeah, so I think Kim does a great job of setting the table here because what's happening in Florida 
is a really disturbing landscape. You know, we talked a little bit in the, the last topic about how this all becomes a bright, shiny object that DeSantis can sort of throw up in your face while he's trying to run for office. It is essentially part of a power grab. It's not part of a legitimate philosophy, which I think makes it really even um, more malicious than it would be if he maybe had a sincere belief in it. This new act that Florida has just put into place in the last week or so has a lot of impact on higher education in public schools. And as Kim points out, there are people who are struggling to go to college or to go to university, and their only option is a public school in their home state. So what this does is it essentially cuts off Florida students who are from a lower income status. You know, kids like me, my mom was a single parent who taught preschool. I was lucky and got a college scholarship for debate. And yes, there are people who have those opportunities, but not everybody is that lucky. So this is a very real problem for real people. Here's what now the state of play in Florida looks like. Diversity, equity, inclusion programs are essentially unfunded. The new Florida law says you can't spend any money on this sort of programming, not to create it, not to maintain it, not to achieve any of its goals. And those programs are very important. I have a colleague at the University of Alabama who's our DEI guy, and he does a lot of important programming that educates the entire student body, but that also goes a long way to ensure that we have a diverse faculty, that we have diverse students, and that once they get there, they stay. So banning spending on these programs is a tremendous loss, but that's not enough for Florida. They go even further and they explicitly ban any sort of teaching that focuses on a concept that you may be familiar with as critical race theory. Essentially, anyone who teaches that there are structural impediments and now in Florida, not just, not just structural racial problems in our institutions, but also structural problems that impact sexism or what the state deems any other kind of oppression, which I take to mean you just can't teach history, right? You can't teach right. history in Florida classrooms anymore. You can't teach current events. You can't talk about a criminal justice system that over-incarcerates black men, for instance. That's all off the table. In Florida, you can no longer learn anything that makes Ron DeSantis uncomfortable. And that's the state of play. And you probably can't talk about the fact that women aren't in the Constitution yet, because he wouldn't like that. No structural sexism. Right, Stop. exactly. Yeah. And, and diversity is, DEI, is no longer considered diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. That's how he's defined it. So Barb, talk about now what's happening. There's a new um, trend that they are going to review tenured faculty every five years, which of course to me, as an outside academic, you know, not being like you guys, professors, seems like it kind of undoes what tenure does, which is to give you freedom of speech. If you're reviewed every five years, that's not lifetime tenure. What's going on? Yeah, so in March, uh, the Florida Board of Governors that oversees the Florida university system said that we're gonna review tenure every five years. And then if you overlay it 
with the new law that says you can't use state funds for anything that involves diversity, equity, and inclusion. Keep in mind that the word equity is what Title IX is all about. <laughs> so essentially, this Florida yeah. law violates federal law that says you must have equity in higher education, in all education. Um, so you can't do anything that has anything to do with diversity, equity, or inclusion, and you also can't use uh, programming that has anything to do with uh, political or social advocacy. So what does that mean? And I, I think a real challenge here, if you are a tenured professor, is the landscape is now completely chaotic because it's vague, it's overly broad, and they don't know what is fair game and what is not. And so, you know, in academia, people really value um, the idea of, um, you know, freedom, academic freedom, that I'm allowed to say things that might be a little bit edgy, and I'm allowed to talk about things. And that's how, you know, we, we advance as a society, by talking about things, debating them. Some ideas are great, some ideas are not so great. But by having that free exchange of ideas is how we move more toward a more perfect union. Um, and without it, I worry that in, if you are a professor in Florida, um, you're probably looking for another job. If you are a university in Florida and trying to attract top talent, they ain't coming. Um, that's a joke. That's a bad joke. Um, uh, if you're an aspiring professor, right, why would you go there? And so, and now what effect does that have on the students? Similarly, as you say, the students who can afford to go elsewhere, like Berkeley, perhaps they will, but for lots of kids who are in Florida, will not have those options. And so the quality of education will, result, will, will, will fall, as will you know, the ability of our future generations of citizens uh, to be productive members of society. Now, before uh, I, I say wrap, I will allow one last word, but I will say, I know you all have been thinking about your questions. You can begin queuing up at these two microphones as we wrap this up. I do have an eye on the clock. Actually, my former boss is here when I used to uh, guest host on Washington Journal on C-SPAN. Michelle is here, so she will be very proud that I'm keeping a very close eye on that clock to make sure <laughs> we run on time. But still, I want to give you a last word on yes. this. Well, there's so many questions about Ron DeSantis that remain unasked here, and if we're running out of time, it's going to be a problem. But I think, let me just ask two more questions. No, one more question. No, we wrap. No, we no, really no, have to wrap, wrap Joe. No, no, one question. One is, and the what conclusion is the solution? Is, what and, is the solution? And, and Does anybody round, have something that you could think of that will save? Because the damage to students is not going to be that they aren't going to get into Berkeley because they aren't going to, at grade school level, going to learn history. They aren't going to be able to pass the college SATs. So, because those are based on facts. Those are based on what our real history is. So what do we do to help Florida to save the students getting yeah. an education? Lightning round, because we have a lot of questions to get through. So lightning round. Vote. I was going to say the same thing and specifically vote against Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Barb, what's cooking? <laughs> well, you know me, Kim. I'm always uh, to be found in the kitchen. Um, but with HelloFresh, I actually do cook my own meals because with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. It's all true. HelloFresh makes dinner time a snap with deliciously easy options that will please everyone at your table. 
From fit and wholesome to pescatarian to veggie, they have meal plans that suit your lifestyle. Plus, you can swap out proteins and sides to your liking. You can also check Save Money off your growing to-do list with the help of HelloFresh. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout, so it's always a treat. HelloFresh is great even if you like to cook, which I do, because you can take the base recipe and jazz it up a little bit, or even change it around. The ingredients are so fresh and great to use that it makes cooking easy. And HelloFresh works with your schedule. Their plans are flexible and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and change your address with just a few taps on the HelloFresh app. Imagine getting fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week. It allows you to enjoy the flavors of the season right from home. So go to HelloFresh.com Sisters16. Say that three times fast. And use code SISTERS16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com SISTERS16 and use code SISTERS16 for how many? 16 free meals plus free shipping. Everyone can also look for the link to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, in our show notes. You guys are good. We're definitely keeping y'all around. A reminder to everyone to ask to say your name, uh, say what, where the alien should visit here in DC, and then quickly ask one question, and we are gonna try, we already see that there are a lot, we're gonna get through as many as possible. I'm gonna go back and forth between the two microphones, and I'm gonna start here, go ahead. Hi, I'm David. Um, I'm in great awe of all of you. Lots of brain power on the stage, <clears throat> excuse me. I would love to see all four of you on the Supreme Court instead of <laughs> six <laughs> members specifically. That was going to be one of my questions, would you do it? But I'm going to save my question. Um, uh, aliens should visit TR Island, Teddy Roosevelt Island. It's a little secret. It's out there. Yes. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's a great little uh, day trip. And um, question, well, first of all, can I do a fact check? Jill, um, you said that you're not in the academic community, but I'm sure in all of your jobs, you must have been a professor at one point, right? <laughs> you mean before was, after she yes, was an astronaut? Exactly. I taught at my uh, uh-huh. alma mater, Columbia Law School. I taught trial practice for a brief moment. <laughs> and, I knew it. And while waiting for my security clearance at the Department of Justice, I taught high school in Rockville, Maryland. Yeah. yeah. There's every always, week, every week we learn about a new job that Jill has had. <laughs> Next week we'll learn. I'm the Forrest Gump of the group. <laughs> Next week we'll learn about her time as a marine biologist. But go ahead, ask your question. Okay. So quickly, uh, can I, a really blue sky question here. One of the things that I uh, wonder about America <clears throat> is, I love America. I love the structure. I love that it's for the people. But I also feel like the whole thing that started us off with the Senate and the House of Representatives is really hurting us now because the Senate has so much power and it's two senators per state and some of these states have fewer people than DC has and yet we have no senator, right? So blue sky ideas, like is there anything we can do or just like is there a better way to think about things? I mean in 1908 I think they... Okay, what's the question? All right, we got it, we got it. 
Liz, well, do, do we not see a huge problem here? They, they also yeah. affect the election because okay. they have yeah. electoral votes. So we got no, it's a great question, yeah. and um, we appreciate it. You, know, Jamie Raskin, uh, representative from Maryland, yeah. has proposed doing away with the electoral college, which yeah. I think is one of the things you're talking about, and creates this great power imbalance. So states like Wyoming, with what do they have, 12 people there, have the same power in the Senate as the state of California, right, with millions. And so, um, you know, vote, voting rights in D.C. So, yeah, I do think so. You know, when you have big seismic problems like this, it takes a while. It's like, as someone once said, you know, tipping over a vending machine. It doesn't go on the first try. You got to shake it up and shake it up, but eventually it goes over. And so I think the more we talk about it and the more we normalize the idea, uh, the more palatable it becomes. But I, think I, it's I do one. have to mention there's an interstate compact act, which has been signed on by many states, including mine, and it would eliminate the problem of the Electoral College because it would mean that every state that signs would agree that they would cast their ballots for the winner of the national outcome popular vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so look at that, guys, and see whether in your states or, or in wherever you might have influence that could become something that your state passes. Okay. Name, alien, question. Um, my name is Melissa, um, and I'm not really going to precisely answer the first one because the best museum that, that, that DC ever had no longer exists, and that's the museum. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. We miss it so much, and maybe hopefully one day when I'm still alive, it'll come back. Yeah. But anyway, that's my end. Okay, I'm going to ask a very simple, probably really unimportant question, but I've just been curious about this. Did Donald Trump pay off Summer Zazaroff? Who? Summer Zervos? Zervos. I, I didn't Summer Zervos. Yeah. Nobody, uh, nobody has looked into that. Know? Why hasn't anybody Did looked into that? Who? I don't know. I, mean, I honestly she, don't know. She dropped her lawsuit. I don't know. No. Yeah, I think that's just one of the unknowns. It's not unusual okay. for cases to settle. Sometimes they settle because money changes hands. We just don't know because Trump is a master of using non-disclosure. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. It's the timing that looks so suspect yeah. because we used to hear about her, but as soon yeah. as he was out of office. Yeah, that's um, okay, that was it. Thank you. Thank God. you. Joyce is knitting a non-disclosure agreement right now. <laughs> Notice she's not knitting on stage. There you go. Hi, uh, Letitia Gomez. Uh, if you have time, either walk, hike, or take a bike ride through Rock Creek Park. Yes. yes. So, um, unlike Nazi Germany, we're not burning books, we're banning books. And this morning in the Washington Post, there was an article about laws that are being passed in various states where a public librarian or a school librarian can be jailed, uh, pay $10,000 fine. Um, and I'm just, my question is, is that a First Amendment infringement? And if, what could be done? I mean, if I'm a public librarian or a school librarian and I, give someone harmful, in quotes, harmful literature, I get, I get jailed? What, you know, what recourse does someone like that have? It's a law that'll have to be challenged because we cannot allow the restriction of books. Barb mentioned something in answer to another question, which reminded me, my undergraduate degree is journalism, and I read a book called Areopagitica by John Milton, in which it talks about, in the marketplace of ideas, truth will out. And if we don't have a free marketplace of ideas, we will be Nazi Germany. Okay, thank you. 
Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Adele. My alien uh, tip is the uh, DC waterfront along the Potomac yeah. from Main Avenue Seafood down to uh, yeah. the Anthem. Uh, go hear some music. It's where the action is. Great. And uh, my question has to do with pardons, pardons, pardons. Uh, <laughs> First of all, what, and this is kind of a two-part, what do you think the chances are that the people who likely could be indicted along with Trump already have pardons from him? And secondly, uh, the selling of the pardons by Rudy and, uh, Rudy and uh, the other guy, um, wouldn't that constitute uh, witness tampering under 18 U.S. Code? Should any of those people to whom they sold pardons be implicated no. in the special investigation. Thank you, and I love you guys. Wow. Thank she, you. We appreciate the citation of the statute. Thank you yeah, very Adele, much for that. I, I want Adele on my legal team. <laughs> DC lawyer here. Oh uh, yeah, excellent job, Adele. So um, number one, that uh, selling of pardons is something absolutely worthy of investigation. Maybe he's just talking tough. You know, maybe it didn't happen. Maybe he did, sold them fraudulently without actually talking with the president. But if there was, it is a, it's absolutely a bribery scheme, or as you say, it could be an obstruction of justice. So that is, is excellent. I have heard this theory before, this idea of like a pocket pardon, that he actually secretly pardoned family members, close advisors, or himself. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know whether we'll know that un un unless and until he actually pulls them out of his pocket because to effectuate them, it's sort of like I declassified in my mind. Um, what if he just says, I mean, hear me out. Maybe this is what you're thinking of, Adele. He gets charged like, oh, psych, I forgot to tell everybody. I pardoned myself for anything I ever might have done back in 2020. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, there actually is an OLC opinion on this. I know, OLC opinion, the same people who brought you a sitting president cannot be indicted. Yeah. But hear Ooh. me out. Um, they also did give an opinion um, that said a president cannot pardon himself. So if he can't be charged, he also can't be pardoned. So let's hope that one prevails. And you can't pardon you. future crimes. And luckily for us, he keeps committing them. <laughs> right. Thank you. Hello, Hello I'm Dorothy. And uh, aliens should visit any restaurant that Jose Andres runs. Yes. A world central Seriously. kitchen. He is a wonderful humanitarian around the entire world and even in our city. Um, the, uh, I'm uh, like Kim and Barbara, I'm from Michigan. I now live at the wharf with the wonderful place that uh, uh, Adele has mentioned. The question, and I'm so impressed with Michigan a wonderful governor, Secretary of State, Attorney General, yes. women. Yeah. What, well, what's your question? You know, both of the Michigan houses. is fantastic. What's your question? Uh, <laughs> what, what are the chances of Gretchen Whitmer be running for president? Yeah, I actually think that the governor of Michigan, as the political commentator on the stage, uh, stands an outstanding chance if she continues doing what she is doing right now, which is her job, and staying out of the limelight too early. You see a lot of people, I, you know, Governor DeSantis, when you come out early and you put the target on your back, you may not be long for this world. I remember uh, eight years ago, we were talking a lot about Scott Walker. Um, I think that the early, you know, and I also remember a few months after that, you know, or a few years after that, there was a lot of early talk about Pete Buttigieg. I don't want her to get Buttigieg, so I think she's yeah. doing the right thing. I think her, actually her chances are pretty good. Hi, I'm Maureen from Pittsburgh. 
excuse me, and I have to just share this. I sat down next to a woman from Virginia who ends up having her best friend from high school is my neighbor. So you're connecting the world. That's a very DC story. Yes, yeah, you're connecting the world. My question, I had to write it down. I said, this could be an op-ed subject for the Boston Globe or a question for a reporter. Why doesn't someone ask the Republicans why they aren't afraid of defaulting and um, tanking the U.S. and possibly world um, economies? Where are they hiding their money? And will they let us know what they're going to do with it so we can hide ours? Wow. Um, well, the uh, op-ed ed- editor at the Boston Globe is, is my boss, so I will be sure to pass that on and see if she can find someone to write an op-ed uh, about that. That's outside my wheelhouse, but I think it's an excellent question, and I appreciate you. They're not afraid. I, I, I want to know why they're not afraid I think of what's going to happen they to them. They believe that they will be able to blame it on President Biden and the Democrats, and they will get away with it with their base. It won't be true. It's wrong, but they don't care. That's as simple as I can say. It reminds me of when Mitch McConnell said the most important part of his agenda was making sure Barack Obama fails. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the political part, that's true. I don't know where they're hiding their money is what I meant. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary, and I take people to the National Cathedral because oh, that's beautiful. spectacular. And my question goes back to the conversation about Florida and you all making the points about them running the risk of losing Title VII or Title IX money. But don't you think that's just part of the point? because they want to cripple private or public education, and that's just a loss of another funding source? Yeah, I do. I actually tend to agree with that, and, and I would be even more cynical and say that part of their goal in damaging education is that poorly educated people do not challenge authoritarian forms of government. Exactly. Thank you. Hi, Anita from Ohio, um, Holocaust Museum. If you haven't seen it, it oh, takes yeah. your breath away. Uh, my question, on Alicia's show last night, you had made the point that when the indictment comes down in Georgia, as a former federal employee, Trump could ask that it be moved to federal court. Is DOJ in charge of that? Who would be administering that? What would be advantages and disadvantages of that? So I hope Alicia's ears are burning right now since we're about to talk about her. I don't know if y'all know Alicia Menendez, who's an MSNBC host. We spent an hour with her last night, so we were able to go in some depth on these subjects. There is a provision that permits federal employees who are indicted or sued civilly in state courts and who have uniquely federal defenses to assert to ask that their cases be removed to federal court. Uh, Trump has done that in Manhattan. He's made that motion. The judge has scheduled briefing and argument. We won't find out the answer any earlier than the end of June. I suspect that that case is not a very good case for removal because the indictment in Manhattan talks about events that happened before Trump was a federal employee. But George is different, right? Trump is a federal employee when he calls Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and says, dude, I need some more votes because I lost. I need you to find me some votes that don't exist so I can win. Um, And the question is, can that be removed and what happens? Interestingly enough, in Fulton County, Georgia, which is the Northern District of Georgia, there's actually a case involving some federal law enforcement folks who were prosecuted in state court in Georgia and who succeeded in removing their case to federal court so they could assert a defense of qualified immunity. Trump could possibly make that motion in Georgia 
One question I have, though, is what does he have to gain by going to federal court where there's an experienced United States attorney who actually used to run the domestic terrorism group in Atlanta, very experienced both in trial and strategy-wise, and all of the resources of the United States government then get brought to bear against Trump. So I have a big question about why he might want to do that. But if he does, absolutely, it would call for some sort of um, communication and coordination between Fonnie Willis and her federal counterpart. I suspect that those relationships are strong and that if and when that happens, the work of the prosecutors will be seamless. So I have some really good news and a little bit of bad news. The really good news is after the Q&A segment, we're gonna ask you to stay where you are and stand up, we're gonna turn the house lights on and we're all gonna take a selfie together. Like we're gonna be in a picture with all of you who are here because we wanna capture this night and remember it forever. So keep that in mind, we're gonna take that selfie. The bit of bad news is we have time for two more questions. I mean, I know it's very Sorry. disappointing. We try to get through as many as we can. So the two that are up front, you are our last two questions of the night. Go ahead, name, name alien question. Yeah, hi, my name is Cindy. I am from Richmond, Virginia, but I'm really from Alabama, so roll tide. Roll tide. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have a gift worry, that has been it. passed up to give to you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so my question is around the notion that has surfaced, um, especially with Virginia's most recent um, governor election around parent rights parental rights and how that has been leveraged as a weapon against um, the parents in the LGBTQ community as well. And I re was really wanting to hear your opinion on that. And I'm going to hand this to you. Well, I'll, I'll take that one. I've just, it's, uh, thank you. Will whoever did this come find me afterwards, please? <laughs> so thank you for the, for the question. And I think it goes back to this idea of you know, trying to find a common villain and um, Marshall's support. And if you put parents around it and family values, um, you know, that's a great constituency to appeal to. And so framing uh, the, you know, the war on trans kids or the war against same-sex marriage or whatever it is as going against parental rights or family values, then that's a way to try to marshal support. But I think one way it might backfire is the same thing we saw with marriage equality. Um, you know, that was an issue that they tried to make hay over, and they did for a while, but eventually people started saying, hey, you know what, my, my kid is, um, wants to marry um, the person he loves or she loves, and um, it backfired. So that's why I think they've moved on to new issues, but I think that's why they use the parental rights as a hook for all of this stuff. But you know, it takes all of us identifying these things, calling them out, uh, and so that we can get smarter and we can fight back against these things. So thank you for that question. Last question. I, I am so honored. My name is Jenny. I'm from Eastern North Carolina. Drove six hours here today to get here. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm a retired math teacher and I'm a gymnastics judge. Here's my question. Well, here's my background. Um, in North Carolina, one of the irritating bills that's up right now to go into a, a law is that trans females may not do gymnastics in high school. I have been judging a young lady who made her transition probably six years ago, and I've been judging her now for that length of time. She has gained no advantage by being a female gymnast. One of the reasons that, and one of the sieves of their reasons for doing all this is that, that the males 
transiting to females will have an advantage strength-wise. There is no strength, right, right. there's nothing. So what in the world can we do to ad advocate for her so that I, she's a good gymnast, she's, she's, gained, she's gained knowledge, she's gained um, toe points, she, she can stretch, right. but she has gained no advantage. Why in the world is this happening and how can we stop it? One of the many, yeah. One of the many ways is doing what you're doing and being that wonderful uh, support system for her as we have this, you know, one of the points that I've made about legal defense funds is that we talk a lot about people who are in the spotlight, people who have a lot of wherewithal, people who have a lot of name recognition. It's a lot harder for these battles and challenges to be brought, even if in the end they are successful, which I believe that they will be. It's a lot harder when it is everyday folks who don't have unlimited resources, who don't have unlimited money, who are facing the unbelievable backlash that a lot of these young people are facing um, and also are just dealing with just the horrific impact of this. There is a, a, so much larger incidence of depression, of uh, suicide attempts, of so many things in our young LGBTQ population and it is just horrifying. Not to mention that they go on, particularly trans women, the amount of, um, are, are just astronomically more likely to be victims of assault, uh, including fatal assaults. Just what's up, what these children are up against uh, in their whole entire lives. I would love to see a greater support system built around them, both in bringing the legal challenges and also in making sure that they have a community that is rallying around them and protecting them. And I think that is a critical thing that needs to be done and you are a part of that community. So I thank you for doing that. All right, so now we get to the fun part. We're gonna bring up the lights in the house. We're all gonna stand up. We're gonna turn our backs to you, but don't take that personally. We're gonna want you to stand. Look, this is my home, my home right now, Washington, D.C. I wanna see some energy. I wanna see, and we're gonna take the selfie. gauntlet has been thrown down. We have started out with some uh, half smokes with chili from Ben's Chili Bowl right here in Washington, D.C. after before our live show. So what do y'all think? I gotta say, as a strict fan of Chicago hot dogs, it was good. But I still love my Chicago Vienna hot dog. Does this mean we're doing a Chicago show? It is a Chicago show and it's going to be featuring dinner from my favorite hot dog stand. Oh, well, that's nothing. Just waiting to get a taste of some Detroit hot dogs, right, Kim? We're going to go to bring some Lafayette Coney Islands in, and you'll see what a real hot dog tastes like. Lafayette or American? I like Lafayette. I would go with that. I like Lafayette. Um, they're delicious, but, you know, when I go, I like to go to American because I like to sit in the bow of the boat. That little, oh, that yeah. Little, that little corner. It's like a flat iron building. Lots to look forward to.